0: Today's episode of Positive Regression is sponsored by Craft Beer Club. Craft Beer Club is the original craft beer of the month club searching for the exceptional craft beers from around the country to deliver to your front door. Whether it's a gift for someone else or you want to treat yourself, each shipment includes 12 beers from among the best microbreweries in America, many of which have earned top awards. Our microbrew news newsletter accompanies each shipment so you can learn more about the featured craft brewery and the brew masters. Check out the brewery's
1: tasting notes and test your beer geekiness with beer trivia questions. And you can customize your own ongoing beer club membership. whether it's annually, monthly or quarterly. there is no membership fee. there is no obligation to continue. You may cancel your membership or gift at any time for any reason. Your satisfaction is important. Shipping is always free within the contiguous United States. And if you purchase using beer.posregpod.com, you will receive up to three bonus gifts with your order, and you will help support this very podcast. So take advantage of the offer. Place your order now at beer.posregpod.com.
0: the Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, we say goodbye to four more drivers, at least from the playoffs, and that means we're offering requiems and fixes for those teams. We answer the question, is Kevin Harvick unbeatable? And of course, our Las Vegas preview. But first, as always, this is episode 80 of Positive Regression. This is the Jim Pascal edition. David, Jim Pascal, an excellent old school choice. Mr. Pascal has a few claims to fame, but my favorite, David, is that he was in the inaugural NASCAR race. 1949 at Charlotte Speedway, he was in that race. Jim Paschal, 25 wins, and his first win, David, came in a number 80 in Bloomsburg,
1: Pennsylvania. Oh, yes. He was also a two-time Coca-Cola 600 winner, and he was the first driver to win a NASCAR race in the number 43 car, mm. not named Petty. <laughs> wow. He actually, nine of his 25 career wins came while driving for Petty Enterprises. So how about that? But that, uh, that first, uh, cup series win in 1953 behind the wheel of the number 80 Dodge. In that race, he beat the likes of Lee Petty, Fonte Flock, uh, Buck Baker, who led the majority of that race and Herb Thomas. Uh and that was uh yeah, I mean it, really the the beginning of what became I, I would say a distinguished career. Uh he's often hailed as underrated. He was curiously not selected as one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers back when they uh did that list in 1998. So uh now his Hall of Fame chances and and he's a he's a nominee uh hasn't made it in yet, but I believe, uh, he falls into, uh, what my buddy Jordan Bianchi always refers to as the hall of very good. (laughs) And that might, that might actually be where, uh, Pascal sits, uh, forever. I, I guess we'll see how that changes with the context of time. Uh, but certainly Jim Pascal, underrated driver, but 25 wins. Certainly nothing to sneeze at.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if Hall of Fame wise, is there, is there a Mendoza line? Because 25 wins is pretty good. Uh, Carl Edwards on the ballot with 28. Uh, you would assume he gets in obviously with 28 and his other accomplishments. But when I saw Jim Pascal, 25 wins and just having that old school feel. I mean, uh, there, he has credentials and so it would surprise me. But you know, the the longer we go on, the more some of these older names get forgotten.
1: Yeah. And again, he was one of these guys. We talk about him a lot, but. In the early eras of NASCAR, it just wasn't popular to run the full schedule. Jim Pascal never did that. He was one of those guys, but he still racked up a lot of wins. And as I always do, I looked at his age 39 season, and, huh. but he only ran 18 races that year. He still won twice and, and had a, a, what you would consider a very good stat line, but there just weren't that many appearances. And that wasn't the M.O. of a lot of these drivers back then. They were chasing purse money. And a lot of these races in the early NASCAR days, some tracks were just small, short tracks, and they didn't have the money to draw uh, some of the early NASCAR superstars. So you see a, a lot of guys like this that, you know what, maybe these are. Hall of Fame credentials relative to his era, but he doesn't have uh, the championship. He doesn't even have a, like a top five points finish to point to as an accolade on which to fall back. You just have to look at those 25 wins, and you're right. I don't know what's clear on what the Mendoza line is. But I'm thinking he's got to be pretty close.
0: Sure. It's hard to get more old school than a driver who was in the very first NASCAR race. Pretty awesome. Episode 80, the Jim Pascal edition. David, let's get it started. We have finished the first round of the Cup Series playoffs. That means on this podcast anyway, it is time to say goodbye to the four drivers who and teams who are no longer in the playoff. We offer our requiems and our fixes as we look toward uh, the next year, so David, let's start at the top of the four who are no longer with us, and the top, David, Ryan Blaney. Uh, let me just say, Ryan Blaney was in my final four for Phoenix, so my bracket busted. David, where do you start when you look at the
1: year the number twelve team had? So let's think about this. Was there was there a shock driver that did not? Make the playoffs. I think Jimmy Johnson was the closest to that, but he missed a race, right? So I I feel like everyone that we believe should have gotten into the playoffs got into the playoffs. So my thinking is that Ryan Blaney is the first shock of 2020, and I say that because I look at what he was able to string together. During the regular season with a, essentially a new team, all the Penske drivers swapped teams. And this was his first year with crew chief Todd Gordon. But this number 12 team ranked first in central speed through the first 26 races. Wow. And, the regular season. And if we wanna, if, if we wanna kind of Put that into perspective because that might be tough for some of our listeners to see. He only won one race, and it was Talladega. It was consistently good speed, and that was that, was that rather than having lights-out speed and a handful of races where he was contending for wins. The 12 team only actually had the fastest car in two races this year. Uh, the first was the second Charlotte race. And the the second was the race at Texas, both similar mile-and-a-half tracks, both, interestingly, races that saw practically no tire wear. And across the three races that comprised the first round of the playoffs, and these were tracks where tire wear was abundant, they ranked 19th in Central Speed. Wow what a drop how do you expo-
0: that's a huge drop off david finishes of 24th, 19th and 13th in those races
1: so it's fair to call his playoff exit a uh, collapse right because 19th uh from 1st is a humongous drop but i think much of what we saw from this team these last 3 races was a harsher than usual regression to the mean, and I don't know that this was screaming in the numbers as much as it was just piecemeal in the details. This is a good team. It's not a great team, and I think their speed at times this year kept them in races. The drivers certainly kept them in races. Ryan Blaney, I mean, this has been to date the first time he's recorded a positive surplus passing value, and that is a major improvement on long runs for him. Now, he's always been a stud on short runs. He right now ranks third in restart position retention this season, but in races with a heavier-than-average caution volume, his average finish is 20.3, and that is compared... To a 12.95 place average finish in races containing fewer than the average amount of clean restarts. That 20.3, that number, by the way, that is worse than the same number for the three other eliminated playoff drivers. It is worse than Tyler Reddick, a rookie. It is worse than Michael McDowell, who has a 17.22 average (laughs) finish across the same sample. Alan, my fix for next year for this team is to shrink that particular average finish split. And that means a little bit of everything, but better pit road work, better strategy under caution flag conditions, and figuring out how to turn Ryan Blaney's strength, which is restarting, how to turn that into an all-around Team strength and build results on that because they've yet to do it. It strikes me that this number 12 team has the ability to emulate the speed of elite teams, but in reality, are they going to go head-to-head with the likes of Kevin Harvick and Martin Truex and Denny Hamlin in a straight-up green flag contest? No, at least not Yet, yeah, not for a number of years. We need to see it before we can believe it. But getting better in these more chaotic races, uh, being in contention to win these races, that is probably their most realistic route. To a multi-win season, which we've never seen from Blaney, I think that's the next step uh, for for the for the evolution of this number twelve team.
0: And that just sparked a question in my head. I know you wins are hard to to label or to look at in terms of stats, in terms for success anyway, uh, because a lot goes into them. But David, when you have the fastest car over a twenty six week period and you only have one win, where do you look for the deficiencies?
1: I think you look at the races in which your speed was good, everything seemingly broke in your favor, and you try to figure out what didn't go right. The Las Vegas race this spring stands out. Uh, again, Ryan Blaney was fast on a mile and a half racetrack. This appears to be the bread and butter for Todd Gordon teams if we're looking back over his history at Penske but they were in position to win that race. They chose to pit instead of staying out and attempting to defend a lead position with a restart, which again, that is Ryan Blaney's strength. And this team has to figure out how to let Ryan Blaney's strength guide them to results because that is a disconnect. And that's one it can be corrected, but it comes with strategizing around it. Right now, it feels like this team doesn't really know what it is, doesn't know what it does particularly well. But when you have a driver like Ryan Blaney, who from the get-go of his Cup Series career was a short-run specialist of sorts, now he's getting better, his His, his spider chart profile is becoming more well-rounded by the year. But if you don't want to hang your hat on that strength, what are you doing? You're, you're going to rely on something else that perhaps the driver isn't ready to do or you aren't particularly good at. So uh, that's, that's kind of what, what draws me in is why isn't a team leaning into the strength? Ryan Blaney, fast car, fast restarter. You can't control how a race breaks, but when it does break in your favor, you need to put yourself in a position to take advantage of it.
0: Ryan Blaney, we'll see you in 2021. Next up, David, the number 24 team at Hendrick Motorsports and William Byron. David William Byron finally broke through with his first win this year, that dramatic season finale in Daytona. That was one of his top uh, fives, obviously, in the top tens this year. It's looking like he's on pace to match the same number of top fives and top tens he had last year. But, David, surprisingly, 2020 a step back because Byron went further in the playoffs last year than this year. His average finish worse this year than last year, at least so far. Uh, but David, and I look up, I do some research at motorsportsanalytics.com, and his peer is actually, his performance and equal equipment rating actually higher than you projected for him. How do you explain that, given some of his results?
1: Well, for starters, that 24 car is the slowest of the Hendrick stable. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, who did not make the playoffs, fares better in central speed. And compared to last year, where he was struggling to outfinish his pace, he turned that around this year. Although that was just difficult at times to see. That beginning of this season was really, really tough. They didn't get it into gear until I feel like the final eight races of the regular season or so. But the production has turned the corner. William Byron is going to be okay. I, the, the team is what I have questions about. I have questions about Hendrick Motorsports as a whole, but the 24 team in general, Chad Knauss's pit strategy output was good. I mean, he, he can, he can still call a decent race, but at the same time, shouldn't a car with William Byron behind the wheel be a little bit faster? I know that this was a, a driver who contended for uh, the mantle of most pole wins last year and that is a strength that was removed this season just because of the the covid practice and qualifying protocol but i'm really interested in hearing your fix because i i don't know if you're willing to do it but if you were wanted to make a case that maybe it's time for a new crew chief Ooh. to work with william byron i might be open to hearing that that would
0: be Crazy to propose, right? I mean, it's Chad Knauss. Uh So that is interesting. They did get that win together. It's been interesting to see the evolution of, of Byron and Knauss just from the William Byron side, you know, interviewing him uh, throughout the years, especially this year, just hearing the change that, uh, you know, instead of he even made the comment, William did. I can't look at him like a father figure, right? I have to look at him as a working relationship, like a boss, right? You know, we respect each other. He's got to respect what I do, obviously respect what he do. But you can't look up to Chad Knaus like in this awe, this figure that you have to, you know, uh, bow down to. If, I'm, I'm I'm making up these words here. But, it, you know, it, the, the professional relationship had to be one of, hey, look, I'm a good driver, you're a good crew chief, let's go out there and do it. So that that was a maturation, I guess, what I'm trying to say that I heard in William Byron this year. Uh, but, but David, I wasn't thinking the team side, or I wasn't thinking crew chief change from Chad Canales. What I was thinking is, is if you're going to have the what 13 fastest car or the slowest Hendrick car, you're going to need to tra- you're going to need some track position. You're going to need to be able to hold on to it. You're going to need to be able to gain it, especially on restarts. And David, William Byron, pound for pound, the most positions lost so far this year on restarts, 123 positions lost in total. One hundred and forty five of them from the non-preferred groove. To me, David, that means track position that you need, especially if you don't have speed. Uh that that needs to be improved if there's going to be deficiencies elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and and you know, give or take a few aberrations. I know Las Vegas, he had a particularly poor restart, uh Pocono, all of those Hendrick cars Seem to have bad straightaway speed, and Byron really suffered on one restart in particular. But you're right. I think it's going to be mitigating losses. And we look at the drivers who seem to do well in the non-preferred groove. It's the drivers that do very little because their movements are deliberate. Uh, you know, pick your poison. Is it Joey Logano, Kevin Harvick, even Matt DiBenedetto at times this year? The non-preferred groove does not intimidate them because they are not trying to turn it into an opportunity for offense. You hit the nail on the head when you brought up a need for track position. I mentioned that qualifying isn't an option for William Byron. So there was always this thought of trying to get positions in a hurry in the short restart window. And sometimes a lot of these younger drivers that we've seen this year are overeager because they realized very quickly there isn't much opportunity to go out and get positions. And I think a part of Byron's maturation is figuring out when to play offense and when to play defense. And ultimately that will come, but yeah, that you're, you, you're absolutely spot on. That's an area that needs to improve if they're going to bring home, let's say a seventh fastest car, uh, with a, with a fifth place finish.
0: All right. William Byron, improvement in the wind column, uh, some work to do elsewhere. David, next up, the number 41 team at Stuart Haas Racing. Where do you what do you want to say about Cole Custer, who got a win? He's the rookie of the
1: year, but uh early exit from the playoffs. That is all true. Uh I would like to point out that Mike Shiplett, his crew chief, was your crew chief of the first half of 2020. And he still leads all crew chiefs in positions earned during green flag pit cycles. That is a good thing. But I will caution, if that number is high every year, all the time, and right now it's in the triple digits, then it means that there is a lot of track position to be had. So it's most likely they'd uh, prefer to not have to rely so heavily on pit cycles for making up track position.
0: To put it simply, if you're running fifth, you can't gain that many positions on the track. But if you're running 26th, that's a whole lot you can jump. And that's where the metrics come in. I mean, that's where the numbers really start stacking up.
1: Bingo. And that's the story. <laughs> now, there there is good news on this front. Among drivers ranked inside the top 30 for average running position, Cole Custer ranks sixth in positions gained on restarts. It was a restart on which he won at Kentucky, and since the choose rule was implemented, he ranks fourth in positional net from the time of the lane choice to two laps after the restart. Only Ryan Blaney, Joey Logano, and Brad Keselowski are faring better. So there you go, Cole Custer, basically a Penske driver already, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and now, and now from. A production standpoint, uh, and from a speed standpoint, this team lacks. You know, you, you, you look at this as a Stuart Haas racing car. You wonder how on earth do they rank 21st in central speed? I didn't know Stuart Haas made cars this slow. Ooh, Custer finished better than his speed ranking in 16 of his 29 starts. So that's more than half of his races. But five of those results were in the 17th to 20th range. So he's got a, got a little bit of learning to do. He's the youngest driver among the top 30, only 22 years old. His improvement, uh, will come. It might not be immediate though. So, Alan, I'm wondering if a crew chief swap would do him some good. So, Mike Bugaravich, Johnny Klausmeier, also at Stuart Haas. I'd love to see what would happen if they brought their horsepower, their Cup Series experience to Cole Custer, because when I watch this 41 team... It looks like an Xfinity Series team competing in the Cup Series, and in many ways, that is exactly what it is. Hmm. Because, no disrespect to Mike Shiplett, I mean he's he is he is a talent, but he was also a Cup Series rookie this year, along with Cole Custer and two rookies leading what is a playoff team. Makes me think that the ceiling for immediate improvement is low. And actually, just going by the fact that they made the playoffs probably ahead of schedule this year, I would say regression is in the cards anyway in 2021. So my fix, I'm going to say a new crew chief for Cole Custer among those already employed at SHR. Interesting. Uh,
0: Despite the success they've had, because I was looking at what you uh, projected for Cole Custer, and he underperformed by your peer projections. What should we put our look at when we're looking at what was projected of him and what he actually did on the track? What, What was the difference?
1: Yeah, I think that's just a disconnect that you're going to see with a lot of young drivers. Um, again, I point to age. Uh, he is the youngest driver right now among the top 30 drivers. And what he offers, he's a negative surplus passer. His restarts, when they're good, they're great. And when they're bad, they're really bad. He's an incomplete driver. But He's an incomplete driver because he's not a mature driver, nor would I have expected him to be. I was in the camp a little bit, uh, thinking that he could have stayed another year in the Xfinity series. Now, I think he also would have won 10 races this year, uh, and there isn't a, another division in between Xfinity and Cup for him to matriculate at. So this was always going to be a pretty difficult season. I mean, there was a lot of chatter. We had to talk about it uh, on our podcast, but there was a lot of uh, a chatter on the message boards and Twitter and Reddit about, is Cole Custer a bust? And that came very early in the season. But when he started stringing restarts together and then that begat stringing runs together and then he was starting to have complete races slowly but surely, he started looking like a driver worth his salt. And as that continues into the new year, as he has more complete races, we'll see him fulfilling every projection of him and then potentially surpassing it. But right now, what we're seeing is an incomplete driver. They're hard to predict um, just because we, we really don't know what driver we're going to get from week to week. But that will slowly dissipate and then we'll be able to comprehend what exactly Cole Custer is as a NASCAR Cup Series driver.
0: Cole Custer, we'll see uh, who's leading the team in 2021. Next up, David, finally, Matty D, the number 21 team at Wood Brothers Racing. David, I had big plans for Matty D on Race Hub. I predicted he would win twice, including the Daytona 500. So I was way off, but whatever. There's still some time left to get some wins. But uh, just, there were a lot of expectations, right, coming into this year, getting that first really good ride uh, in the Wood Brothers, you know, Penske affiliation. So let's look at the good for Matty D and the 21 team. Pound for pound, David, the most positions gained on restarts this year right now. Wonderful restarts. Restarter for Matt Benedetto. The bad, David. If you just want to look at, he has two top fives right now. He had three last year with Levine Family Racing. Uh, I would expect, I would have expected more out of Matt DiBenedetto when you're looking at just those baseline stats. Uh, now, he did make the playoffs, but his results, terribly inconsistent. I would say, you could easily say he backed into the playoffs, even at Daytona in that race. I mean, it was just... Uh, kind of luck of the draw right at the end. I mean, he just, that Daytona race where he needed to run up front and be strong, it, it was kind of like an, an eighth to 16th place run all day and, and kind of got lucky. I don't know, maybe not lucky is the right word, but, uh, it, it certainly was not the best effort at the end of the race when he needed to be his strongest. So I know I'm harping on that one a lot, but it was just inconsistency, especially in the back half of the regular season. He's had no top 10 since the beginning of August. David, he has the 15th fastest car, averaging a 15.4 average finish, so I guess right on par. I guess one weakness that I saw that I'd like to see some fixes with, uh, fourth quarter speed, David, uh, for that team, was, was a significant drop-off, I felt, uh, looking at the data on motorsportsanalytics.com, and when it is needed, Uh, It wasn't there, and that can cost points and positions and ultimately can bounce you from the playoffs if the performance isn't there at the end of these races. And so that would be one of my fixes for Matt DiBenedetto. David, I'll let you uh, weigh in before I, I pose some other questions at you.
1: No, that's a good pull on the fourth quarter speed because perennially that is a strength of Penske's drivers and crew chiefs is that they get faster as races progress. and. You know, it's 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 not just him. It's also Greg Irwin. It's the fact that there's no practice, they are, are are likely using a race to figure all of that out. But even then it's not they aren't they aren't getting faster. Now I've got a question for you. Matt De Benedetto is sort of a free agent this season. It depends on whether uh Wood Brothers and Penske elect to use the team option for twenty twenty one. So hate to put you on the spot. All right. Well, I kind of actually love putting you on the spot, but <laughs> no, answer, answer it anyway. But do do you do you keep Matty D for for another role?
0: Oh, I don't have the heart to say that an answer like this. Of course, you keep Matty D. You can't give him one year. But David, you know, I, I I think with my heart. You don't have to. That that is part of your skill as an analyst to say you don't have a heart. And we've been over this on this podcast. So I will reverse the question on you because I yes, the question is going to be asked right now. Matt De Benedetto, Wood Brothers, as we as far as we know, have not activated the 2021 option so far. Apparently, he has to be told by the end of the month. So, David, who better to answer that question than this podcast and yourself? Uh, is he a better option than Austin Sindrick or Chase Frisco after one-year sample size in the 21? What say
1: you, sir? Of course he's a better option, but that's not that's not the question that's going to be asked. Uh, if it were up to me, I would absolutely enjoy having one of the best restarters in the NASCAR Cup Series on my team. That's a no-brainer. The question, though, is he a more affordable option? Is he the option that makes the most sense to the bottom line? Matt DiBenedetto agreed to his current contract around this time last year, pre-pandemic, and opting in... That would be to a previously agreed upon number, and that I feel is what Penske and Wood Brothers are going to consider when making this decision. Because Austin Sendrick, who oh, his you know been in the Penske camp seemingly forever, is going to come at a more affordable, pandemic-friendly rate, and it stinks to price De Benedetto out. In that manner, but I think it's that is what he's up against. Not necessarily that Austin Sendrick or even Chase Briscoe might be better than Matt right now, because that's not the case. Matt De Benedetto has years of Cup Series experience under his belt. He now has stat uh, bona fides to fall back on. He's fine. He's, he's a good driver. I don't know how high the ceiling is, but you certainly know what you can get from him. As you said, 15.4 place average finish with the 15th fastest car. I think that's pretty telling. A younger driver might not be able to accomplish that. So if it's just based on ability, yeah, of course you keep Matt, but I don't know that that is what is going into this decision.
0: Interesting. So certainly a question going into 2021 for the driver of the number 21. David, that wraps up our requiems and fixes for this round. We'll be back in three weeks with more requiems and fixes. We'll see who survives the next three races. Speaking of that next round of the playoffs, David, we're heading to Vegas this weekend. And, uh, you know, we type out the, the show notes and, and David, you know, 90% of it is uh, your thoughts and content. And then we bounce back and, and kind of refine it and everything. But what I'm getting at David is you posed a question that surprised me. The question you posed, David, is Kevin Harvick impossible to beat? And I was so surprised because you are not one for hyperbole. You are not one for hyperbolic questions. So for you to say, is Kevin Harvick impossible to beat? It really made me think, Kevin Harvick's having a damn good year. What do you mean by this question?
1: What do you think? Is Kevin Harvick impossible to beat? Is he that good, David? Uh, he's good. Um, no, not impossible to beat, but I think it's, it is an interesting thought exercise because in recent weeks, Harvick's number four car has become the fastest car in the series, fastest of the last eight races, for sure. And Harvick's long run passing, which at times, uh, both last year and this year, has appeared shaky, has not been an issue. And as a matter of fact, uh, he has not had a race with a negative surplus passing value since New Hampshire in early August. So his passing's on point. Now, Rodney Childers has done an exceptional job of not allowing Harvick into situations that could make him vulnerable. Uh, that team was ripping off fast lap times and clean air at Darlington and Richmond on fresh tires. And that sort of thing tips his central speed and potentially improves his passing. But this, what we've seen of late has been a team wide master class. And furthermore, this team is better now than they were in the springtime when they were, you know, just winning maybe two out of every six races. And that what we thought that was a, a <laughs> only, a heavy, uh, <laughs> yeah, we have thought that was a heavy rate. Right. Um, I, I, he is fallible. It's, it's not impossible to beat him. But the reason I pose this question is that the teams that are best suited to do that, to beat him, uh, the 11 with Denny Hamlin, the 19 with Martin Truex, and maybe, uh, Kyle Bush's number 18 team, they've beat themselves in these early races of the playoffs. Darlington strategy was curious for JGR as a whole, if anything. Kyle Busch threw away that win at Bristol. You can blame Joey Logano all you want, but Kevin Harvick got by him just fine. So uh, essentially what Harvick and Shoulders are doing is making sure they are positioned to do what they do best and eschewing situations that aren't favorable. For instance, like a long-pitting strategy, probably not conducive to Harvick's ability So they don't do it, and it's not an issue. And meanwhile, other teams that also have weaknesses have not been working to avoid situations in which those weaknesses could come to the surface. So as it pertains to this weekend's race in Las Vegas, Harvick's record in recent races might not be as impressive as the Penske cars or Martin Truex, but you'd have to imagine that based on his recent form and how they've gone about winning at all of these different tracks that they're just going to pull from the same playbook regardless of where they're at. So while, while they might not be impossible to beat, they're going to continue to, to do these things that make them very good. It, it now comes down to maybe, maybe a team can't beat them heads up, but can a, can an opposing team not beat themselves in order to not hand the race to the four team? I think we're at that point right now in the playoffs and I'm you know interested to see if one of these teams can figure that out.
0: Yeah, and one reason I like this question my my uh, analysis won't be as in-depth or insightful David, but it just seems that though Kevin Harvick is reaching that that uh, that annoying phase of, of being like the Patriots or Jimmy Johnson in in his real heyday in terms of like No matter what, they're always there and they find this annoying way to win that you're just like, are you kidding me? Like Darlington, right? I mean, you don't hear from Kevin Harvick all night, wins the race. It's like, that is what an awesome team does. Like the Patriots of old, like Jimmy Johnson, always there to get the checkered flag. Same thing in Bristol. You know, Kyle Bush is the, the performance of the night. Kevin Harvick wins it. Uh, so when you ask the question, is Kevin Harvick impossible to beat? It's little just degrading things like that. <laughs> like if you're not a Kevin Harvick fan or if you're a fan of another driver, you're just like, how does a team beat this guy? Because they are just doing so well this year. And I, I don't, I, that's why I like the question so much. Is Kevin Harvick impossible to beat? Cause from a, a sports fan's perspective, it just seems like he is in that territory of damn, it is hard to beat that guy. So that's when you bring up Las Vegas. So why, why would Harvick be, I mean, given his performance in nine wins already, it's hard to imagine why he wouldn't be the favorite, David. But so why, why would you think he is a favorite given what we've seen out of Penske in the past few Las Vegas races? Because they've been so good there. But I mean, would you put Kevin Harvick in front of them in terms of a favorite this weekend?
1: Uh, potentially, yes. Uh, there is a, a lap time fall off of one second to 1.5 seconds on old tires at Las Vegas. So the door is open to all forms of strategic creativity. And in that regard, whereas Penske's crew chiefs don't really register for me, um, based on strategic brilliance, I would say, Rodney Childers certainly does. Um, not that he's gambling. I think it's sort of by-the-book stuff, but a lot of these teams have lost sight of what by-the-book means. And in the off-chance, this race uh, does break chaotic, and there's a lot of cautions and a lot of restarts, Harvick is suited for the restarts. He's the second best non-preferred groove restarter this season, and he has the sixth best average gain in positions since the choose rule was implemented and partly why his number isn't higher uh, in that category is because he's at or near the front of the field. And uh, to, to that end, the outside groove at Las Vegas has been uh, better across the last three races there all under this current rules package. And that's a 68% to 40% disparity. But I mentioned the front of the field you should probably keep an eye on the front of the field because row one, both positions inside and outside retain less than half the time. Uh, retention was a rate of 47% across those three races for inside of row one and outside of row one. So sort of weird, but the inside of row two, Proved more valuable than the inside of row one. <laughs> so huh. even, even with aberrations removed, that's how things bore out over this, uh, recent sample of races, which sort of, uh, instills my belief in the strength of Harvick. And, and this could also benefit someone like a Joey Logano for Penske. Holding a lead on Las Vegas restarts is going to be difficult, uh, especially with a lot of uh, different tire strategies going on that we could potentially see. The good drivers are going to be able to maintain that. Uh, I, I would believe that Harvick and Logano fit that bill. Blaney can probably fit that bill if he's able to get back up there. Um, we'll see, but uh, it's, it's going to take a, a heck of a driver to make those restarts work, and Harvick certainly fits that bill.
0: And let's not forget, Kevin Harvick had one of his worst races of the year in Las Vegas earlier this year when he finished eighth. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's, but that's the kind of year Kevin Harvick is having when, uh, when eighth is something to look down upon. So, uh, I would not be surprised if he gets, uh, hits double digits in Vegas, David, but. Let's get to what everyone's waiting for, David. Our weekly contrarian contender picks. Someone maybe under the radar or the non-Kevin Harvicks of the world, if you will, who might sneak into the top 10 or impress your Daily Fantasy lineup. What have you. David, who are you going with for this week's contrarian contender pick?
1: So you know what? Clint Boyer came through for me uh, last week with a sixth place finish, which... That was his best finish of the last six weeks. So I feel a sense of accomplishment, Alan. Uh, my pick this week, I hope to emulate uh, last week's result, but my pick is going to be Austin Dillon. Mm. I believe uh, Sunday's race will skew low on caution volume, which should assist him. If there is a large number of restarts, he is probably toast, but I'll go all in and say this race will stay green for the most part. And with the tire fall off, there may be room for pit strategy that goes against the grain. Uh, this three-team pitted long compared to the most populated lap in the spring race. So that is something to keep in mind. And, uh, and frankly, he needs it. This is a race that they can map out. Uh, to, to make it so that it suits Austin Dillon very well. Talladega and the Roval not as predictable. So there's a need, uh, to do particularly well for Mr. Dillon.
0: Can I put you on the spot? He was obviously the surprise of the first round. Three good performances. Uh, anything you point at as to where he's kind of upped his game, if you will? Is there something that
1: stands out? Strategy one, that's always been good. Speed is the, is, is the second part of that. But, uh, those two things combined have been able to mask what is his chief deficiency, which is restarts. Uh, if you will notice, the three races of the first round did not end with a late race restart. So the things that he did well, they did well, and they deserve kudos in that regard, but he's fresh off of three races that absolutely broke in his favor. It's not a guarantee that that's going to continue going forth in the playoffs, but again, we talk about putting yourself in a position to take advantage of when brace uh when races break in that manner, they did that and they had an exceptional round, and now they're poised for what you know could be a deep playoff run.
0: The audience needs to know that was all off the top of your head, David, because that was not a question on our rundown. So you, you're damn impressive. We already knew that stuff. <laughs> but I just want the audience to know that. You, that was all off the top of your head. That is so awesome. All right, David, my contrarian contender pick, we've already talked about him today because hey, maybe he needs a job in 2021. Matty D is is who I'm picking in Vegas. Maybe not too contrarian. He was second there in the spring, but he's also one of the best passers on mile-and-a-half tracks, and we are back at a a mile-and-a-half track in Las Vegas this weekend. Uh, So I'm just going to go with him. I I think uh, clearly they obviously need the performance coming down, out of being bounced out of the playoff, what have you. But if Matty D does indeed need a job, uh, a good performance may go a long way. I'm not sure. But I I think he will uh, back it up and have a good performance in Las Vegas. Episode 80 of Positive Regression, David. Don't always remember we are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and TuneIn. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This stuff helps in spreading the word. We always notice, and it is so appreciated. Please tell your friends. If you have a question, send them to us. We will answer it at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on?
1: This week, I analyzed Chip Ganassi Racing's hiring of Ross Chastain, a... Good old-fashioned transaction analysis, and that is live on Forbes.com. Later this week, a look at whether this year's Cup Series championship could be decided by a team relying heavily on pit strategy. And that is a deep dive uh, that you will be able to find on MotorsportsAnalytics.com. So please check both of those out.
0: Yeah, make sure you check that out and make sure you check out the, uh, well, all the racing this weekend, but especially the truck race in the playoffs in Las Vegas. I will be flying out there. If you're listening on Thursday morning, first of all, thank you for being a subscriber and I will soon be on a plane out to Aviva Las Vegas for the truck race playoff. I'll be down there on pit road. So make sure you watch that and check out my Twitter feed because we, uh, Alex Bowman, who is advancing in the playoff, he made the A list this week. So that was a fun and enjoyable segment on race hub and make sure you watch race hub every monday through thursday 6 p.m eastern on fs1 another good episode thank you guys for listening to positive regression for david smith i'm alan Cavana. have an awesome weekend everybody